According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Isaiah. We started the book of Isaiah last week, covered Isaiah chapter 1. And uh, from what I heard back, folks were uh, interested in getting the other 65 chapters as well. Since we started with chapter 1 and realized that there is an awful lot still to go. So for this morning, our uh, endeavor will bring us through Isaiah chapter 2. Do I truly believe that we can cover a chapter a week for 66 weeks? Well, love believes all things. (laughs) So even if I struggle to believe certain things, uh, I know that love can believe it all. And We do uh, have a little bit of a thing in our favor coming up because chapter 4 is only six verses. So if I kind of start to lose the pace this week or next in chapters 2 and 3, then uh, we ought to be able to get back on track with chapter 4 in any event. The message, I believe, is powerful, and I believe it is needed that uh, we're going to follow up Isaiah with Jeremiah and the two great prophets to Israel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. One who was blessed to uh, assure them that they were going to be delivered, they were going to be saved. The other was blessed to assure them that they were going to be destroyed. And yet through that, and through the captivity, they would be restored for an eternal glory. I believe that both messages are going to be vital for us because where our nation is, where our nation is presently, I believe is to be very perilous, very hazardous, and... uh, It's either an Isaiah message or a Jeremiah message coming up for the United States of America, one or the other. And I believe that the doctrine from these two books is going to be uh, necessary for believers in our country to stand fast and to have stability and to have joy even while judgment falls. So uh, we'll see if the Lord delays long enough for us to cover what 66 plus 52 is 118, something like that. If we're still here, by the end of that length of time, if the trumpet does not sound and call us to glory, then I believe that this uh, congregation is going to be transformed powerfully through these two, uh, these two prophetic books. All right, before we get started, let's ask God the Father to go to prayer and ask God the Father to sanctify our thinking and to lead us into his truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, it is our delight and our blessing to assemble here today. We thank you uh, for bringing Pastor Martin to us this morning from Kampala, Uganda, and for the word of encouragement and the testimony that he offered to us last hour. Father, we thank you for this hour, and we ask for your word to be alive and powerful. We know that uh, your word does not return void, and we know that because the prophet Isaiah tells us that, Father. And I thank you that as we study this book, We see the entire Bible contained in one book, the book of Isaiah, Father, that teaches us all things from Alpha to Omega and and really in a marvelous way. So open the eyes of our understanding. Give us the big picture of this book, chapter by chapter. And Father, bless this congregation. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 2. We come to a very popular passage and a very popular verse, one that is usually abused and misunderstood, so we will attempt to disabuse you of it this morning and cause you to understand it, because we come to this marvelous uh, hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and everybody right away wants to uh, celebrate peace in our time. So let's understand where verse 4 sits in the context of chapter 2, and let's understand what's really being communicated in this process. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Chapter 1 is really an introductory chapter whereby Isaiah authors the material that's there. But chapter 2 begins the first of his recorded sermons, the first of his recorded messages and a vision, the word that he saw. And it's really going to take us all the way through chapter 4 and into chapter 5 as we break down this particular vision. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, 
Let us go up to the house of the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. All right, so that's a marvelous passage. It's a marvelous book, uh, uh, verse. We love the idea of peace. We love the idea of no more war. But understand what provides for that, what leads up to that. Jesus Christ today is not yet seated on the throne of David, ruling this world from Jerusalem. All right, and until we see that, it is blasphemous to try to visualize world peace. All right, as the bumper stickers might say. I can visualize world peace, all right. And we should, but we should visualize world peace as a consequence of Jesus Christ's victorious reign in Jerusalem. We should visualize world peace as a consequence of Jesus Christ's victorious reign in Jerusalem. And it's not only Isaiah chapter 2 that speaks to this, Micah chapter 4 speaks to this in almost word-for-word format. And uh, a long-standing scholarship debate has been which came first, right? Not the chicken or the egg. Which came first, the Isaiah or the Micah prophecies related to uh, plowshares and the pruning hooks, all right? Related to swords and, and all of this and peace on earth. Yes, peace will come to this earth, but it will come when Jesus Christ conquers, when Jesus Christ reigns in Jerusalem. Peace comes about as a consequence of military victory. And uh, to try to claim otherwise is to violate the principles of Scripture, that are very clearly laid out here. All right. As far as who borrowed from who and so forth, they were both uh, inspired by God the Holy Spirit anyway as they find themselves in Scripture, so we can maybe um, stop worrying so much about who borrowed from whom. But I think they both borrowed from uh, Joel. And the book of Joel actually turns it around the other direction, and we're going to see that here in a moment, that until such time as Jesus Christ reigns, we need to be well-armed. We need to be defending our nation and our, and our uh, locality and our families and so forth, that we have the biblical mandate for personal self-defense. We want to understand this as well. So some things we're going to glean out of this. Jerusalem will become the world's number one travel destination. All right, far more so than what currently tops the charts today. If you spend some time on TripAdvisor or some of the other travel sites, they, uh, they rank all the different tourist destinations on the list. All right, um, Uganda's not on that list. Um, but by the way, it's kind of interesting, neither is Jerusalem. All right, uh, on the TripAdvisor list, they list the top 25 travel destinations and Jerusalem doesn't make the cut on the uh, TripAdvisor list. They do make number 23 in the U.S. News and World Report travel recommendations for for top tourist destinations. And perhaps it's uh, a result of a lot of things. Maybe it's the result of the Muslim violence or the Arab-Israeli conflict or whatever you want to call it. I find it remarkable that the world attacks Israel as if it's their fault that the Muslims want to kill them, and that if, if Israel would just go away, we would have peace on the earth. And that is the direct opposite. We're not going to have peace on the earth by making all the Jews disappear. We're going to have peace on the earth when the king of the Jews is seated on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. And then he will disarm them himself in the process of that. Anyway, I could click on the links and take you to the websites, but I think by virtue of time, let's just let it go. France tops the list, all right? Maybe that says it all. If... uh, if some of these other destinations that top the list, that make the top list, right? Or Constantinople, for example, or Istanbul, they call it these days. Uh, why do these sites top the list the way that they do? What motivates people to go see these things? Well, what's going to motivate people to go to Jerusalem in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ? Because God himself is there. Because the word of God will be there. It becomes a world capital for a number of purposes. It becomes a, a place to travel for the purpose of worship. It's an opportunity to go and worship. 
Now, I realize that might seem strange as well because we think of travel for recreational purposes. Do you ever travel for worship purposes? Do you ever make pilgrimages to different pastors and different churches and whatnot? Well, the world will see an, up, uh, an uptick, uh, uptick of travel to Jerusalem for worship purposes. According to Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven, 27, and Isaiah 27, 13, Zechariah 14, 16 through 19. In fact, for world leaders... For presidents and prime ministers and kings and whatever else, for world leaders in the millennium, they are required to go to Jerusalem once a year. Absolutely required to go to Jerusalem for mandatory worship as a part of subjection to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. All right. So very quickly as we work our way through this, Psalm 22. What happens in Psalm 22? Christ is on the cross. That's right. This is the prophetic word of David a thousand years before the crucifixion. And yet the very words of Jesus Christ on the cross, my my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the assurance that God has heard him and God is going to answer these prayers. And he's looking forward to the glory that is to come because he is suffering the way that he's suffering here on the cross. You get down lower into this chapter and he's he's confident. He says uh, in verse uh, 20 says, deliver my soul from the sword. Okay. And, uh, you got strong bulls of Bashan there in verse 12 and, um, verse 20, uh, deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Verse 21 says, save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. You answered me. Now, David was celebrating his deliverances, but prophetically he was looking ahead to Christ and the deliverances that Christ is going to have while he's on the cross. Then he says, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. I love the confidence that he has in 22.22 that he is already anticipating the answer to his prayer and he's anticipating the worship that he's going to have on the other side of the cross. And so it's in this section then, as we get down to the praise that he's looking forward to, he says in verse 24, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Keep that expression in mind. We're going to come back to it in Isaiah 53, when the man of sorrows is despised and he's uh, considered to be uh, abhorred. And we hide our face from him. God didn't, all right? Only for the moment when he shrouded him in darkness but ultimately the darkness was lifted. From you comes my praise in the great assembly, it says in verse 25. It says in verse 26, the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him, that is the afflicted one, will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Now here's the prophetic promise. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. There will be global pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to worship the crucified, risen, ascended, and returned Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as he is seated on David's throne in glory. Over to Isaiah chapter 27, another glimpse of this in Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27 fits within what we call the little apocalypse or Isaiah's apocalypse, chapter 24, 25, 26, and 27. That block of chapters in the midst of Isaiah is very much like Revelation or Zechariah or any genre of apocalyptic literature. And you'll note in the process of this, uh, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, all right? Anytime you're dealing with Leviathan and serpents, we're talking about the seriousness of the angelic conflict. And we understand that. The Lord brought us into those teachings last year in going through these studies on Satan and the angels and the fallen angels. So it's in this chapter then that we have the assurance. Verse 12, In that day the Lord will start His threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. In other words, that's the boundaries of the land grant, right? That's the boundaries of Abraham's inheritance from the great river Euphrates to the river of Egypt. And this is what the Lord is going to thresh but it's in that day. Don't confuse things with today. That day is still coming. In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. And it will come about also that in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and those who are scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes a center of worship. In fact, there'll be a highway that's going to be built from Assyria, from Egypt, and it will center in 
Jerusalem as the great crossroads. Finally then, Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 19. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. At the end of your Old Testament. Zechariah 14. Mandatory worship. See, we don't have that today. (laughs) Today is the age of grace. Today is free will. You come to church when you want to. And no one forces you to come and listen to the Word of God. But in the Millennial Kingdom, for world leaders, for presidents and prime ministers and kings and whoever else, it is mandatory. For those who refuse, there are real national consequences. Zechariah 14. Behold, a day is coming. This is the coming day, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, uh, the Lord of hosts. A day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. In other words, there's recompense, there's payback, there's blessings to the Jewish people. And uh, so forth. Well, let me skip on down here because there's battle against Jerusalem and then there's the rescue of Jerusalem. Verse 4, on that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is so huge to understand this. This is why second advent and rapture have to be kept distinct. In the rapture, he descends to the clouds and we meet the Lord in the air. He does not touch his feet on the Mount of Olives at the rapture of the church. But at the second advent of Jesus Christ, he does land all the way upon this earth. Big difference. And he actually lands in the very mountain that he took off from on his ascension. Right? It was, it was from the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1 that he departed from his disciples and they were all staring up into the sky. All right. And so he's going to return to that very same spot. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain moves towards the north, the other half moves towards the south. It's a beautiful grace provision. And just when you think there's no way out, God makes a way out. <laughs> right? He creates the way of escape. He will always provide the, uh, the way, even when we think, well, there's no way. It's not possible. Well, there's not a valley there yet, but there's about to be. All right? There will be a valley there when the Lord's feet land on that mountain. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains. And so here's the great deliverance. You will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. We're going to have more to say about that earthquake the days of Uzziah. This is dealing with the Old Testament period of history that we're dealing with here in the book of Isaiah. All right. Now, in that day, it will be a unique day, verse 7, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, the other half towards the western sea. All right. Now, this is millennial geography. On the new heavens and new earth, there is no more sea. But for the thousand years of the millennium, with millennial geography, we have this river that flows from the, from the throne, both west and east. And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one, and His name, the only one. We'll have more to say on that here in a few minutes because uh, Isaiah 2 amplifies this quite a bit. He is the, Jesus Christ is the only celebrity of the universe. And in that day, there will be no glory, no honor, no celebrations of anyone except Jesus Christ. Some other changes take place here. The land will be changed into a plain. There's topographical changes that are exerted. And uh, Jerusalem will be lifted up, which is a good thing too, by the way, because <laughs> unless there's some topographical changes to Jerusalem as it exists right now, the temple that Ezekiel writes about doesn't fit on the, the land as it's configured right now. But it's a good thing that this lifting up of the land will take place, and then uh, Ezekiel's temple will fit just fine. Now, we then end up with plagues for those that choose not to participate. And it's a pretty nasty plague, right? Verse 12, this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. You think the Ebola virus is pretty serious? Don't get me wrong, it's, it's a big deal, all right? And it's pretty devastating right now in Western Africa. But it's nothing compared to what will happen at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongue will rot in their mouth. Wow. Okay. And this, these are those that are assembled against Jesus Christ. 
trying to stop his second advent. All right. Now, he has victory over all that. He conquers all that. Sheep and goat judgment. Unbelievers are sent to hell. The millennium begins with only believers. Things are perfect, right? They live happily ever after? No. Because even starting with believers, the beginning of the millennium, babies are born. And not all those folks get saved. It only takes one generation. One generation. And folks start getting born, they don't get saved. And they're going to rebel against Jesus Christ on his throne. Not right away, but over time. And so we read in verse 16, it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Isn't that marvelous? Nowadays, you know, presidents get together for whatever, some UN conference somewhere, they meet in New York or they meet wherever, and usually they gather together in some great big world leader summit. Uh, Last week, uh, President Obama addressed the Security Council of the United Nations and different things like that. And generally speaking, they show up in New York or somewhere to criticize America or whatever they're going to do, right? They're not showing up to worship Jesus Christ, I'll tell you that, but they will. And they're not going to go to New York and UN World Headquarters to do it. They're going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to worship Jesus Christ on his throne. They will be commanded to from year to year to celebrate the Feast of Booths. That's coming up. We're, in fact, I think we're there right now, right? We just had uh, Rosh Hashanah. The, the Jewish New Year was last Wednesday. All right. I'll lose track of that. All right. And it will be whichever of the families of the earth does not go up. Maybe there'll be a president that says, no, I'm going to pass this year. Maybe uh, the president of the United States or Uganda or Philippines or whatever. Whatever happens, they just decide not to do it. Well, there's consequences. No rain, as it says. Whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up, no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. All right. You think it's rough when your landlord shuts your water off? <laughs> Imagine the creator God of the universe who ends all rain on your nation for the following year because your king did not go up to Jerusalem and worship at the Feast of Booths. And this takes us into some of the other things. I believe that this is part of what the conspiracy is. When the nations devise a, a vain thing, the kings of the earth, and they devise a vain thing in Psalm chapter 2. I think they were coordinating to cover for each other in the, the rain agreements. Saying, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll provide your water for you. And all the schemes to resist the authority of Jesus Christ. There's more that we'll see in the uh, upcoming millennial studies. They go up for worship. They go up for instruction. They want to learn. They want to be taught the Word of God. Specifically, they want to be taught Torah, the law. Not Mosaic law, though. Kingdom law. It's the law of Jesus Christ taught in the millennial kingdom. Isaiah 60 and verse 3, Joel 2, Zechariah 8, a lot of the prophets that address this. This is what's coming up. Israel has this to look forward to in their future. So stay tuned because we're going to be in Isaiah 60 before you know it. Some 58 weeks from now. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, right? Rise and shine and give God the glory, glory. For behold, this is not just a little kitty song, okay? For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. What a delight. They're going to come to the light. They're going to come to the truth of the word of God. Joel chapter 2. So much of Isaiah is dependent upon Joel, and I think it's it's a demonstration of the early date of Joel. I realize there's a lot of people that uh, put Joel late, and they want to make Joel dependent on Isaiah. I think it goes the other way around. And we explained some of that in the Minor Prophets series back in the day. But Joel 2, 28. Again, understand what day this is talking about it hasn't happened yet we're not living in this day and age yet all right this is the coming day of the lord this is the coming second advent of jesus christ it was not pentecost to start the church as some people try because 
they misunderstand Peter's quote in Acts chapter 2. But it will come about after this, I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Understand what's happening here. The whole world receives God the Holy Spirit at the second advent of Jesus Christ. The whole world will be 100% believers that enter into the millennial kingdom. And every believer will receive the Holy Spirit. But the Jewish people will be vested in the prophetic office. That's why it says your sons and daughters will prophesy. The Jewish people will have a teaching function in the millennial kingdom. And their teaching function will be directed towards the Gentiles of the millennial kingdom. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. The Jewish people will finally fulfill everything they were designed to do from the time God called them out of Egypt. They were supposed to be the stewardship nation on this planet to bless all the Gentile nations worldwide. They have not to this point fulfilled that, but they will. They absolutely will. All right. Zechariah 8, verses 20 through 23, gives you an idea how much demand a Jewish person is going to be. I love this. In Zechariah chapter 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities, The inhabitants of one will go to another saying, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. So it doesn't matter what city you're from. We all agree, hey, let's meet in Jerusalem. So many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem to entreat the favor of the Lord. And thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, 10 men from all the nations or all the goyim, all the Gentiles will grasp the garment of a Jew. Ten to one. Here's the, here's the high demand that Jewish people are going to have in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Ten Gentiles will t- grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Quite a bit of difference between how we experience things today, isn't it? Where the Jews are hated and anti-Semitism rages and they're blamed for all the problems in the world. Look forward to that. Finally, they will go to him in Jerusalem for their judgments. They will go to him for their judgments. If they have a dispute, if they need something reconciled, we're fighting over a land boundary, we're fighting over whatever, all right? Jesus Christ is going to settle every international dispute. That's why there's no more wars. You don't need war. Jesus Christ will settle whatever issue you have, whatever grievance you have. He will do so with absolute fairness, absolute eternal righteousness and justice from the throne in Jerusalem. His judgments. Psalm 96, 13. Psalm 110 in verse 6. Marvelous promise in Psalm 110 where you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Isaiah 11, which we'll have nine weeks from now. Acts 17, Revelation 19. All of these promises. All right? War will not be the solution then. Okay? All these people today say war is not the answer. Well, wait a minute. War is the answer for a whole lot of things, just not then when Jesus Christ is the answer for all these things. Jesus Christ will be the one that resolves all disputes. Psalm 96. Psalm 96. I'm tempted to read the whole psalm, but I can't because of time. The... Um, 13th is the final verse. Oh, goodness. When you get home today, read this whole thing. All right? Read all 13 verses. This is uh, the glory of his second advent in his millennial kingdom. Even when creation rejoices. Verse 11 says, Let heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. All right? This is when he's present. He comes back in the second advent. He comes to judge. First advent, he didn't come to judge. He came to save. But second advent, he's coming to judge. The last part of verse 10 talks about that. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Let the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Talk about a dispute, uh, one who solves disputes. All right. 
Psalm 110 and verse 6. Oh, so many of these are so powerful. This is where uh, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You know, the God who cannot lie, and he's taking a vow. How serious do you think that is? Okay, you are a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Peace comes about because of victory. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. All right, so there it is. But he will judge among the nations. Jesus Christ will sit. They will come to Jerusalem for worship, for teaching, for judgment. Nine weeks from now, we'll spell this out in greater detail in Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. There is an awful lot of executions throughout the thousand-year reign of Christ. In fact, we're told morning by morning, if any unbelievers are found within the boundaries of Jerusalem, they will be executed each morning. He will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. See, I think all the animal rights people these days are maladjusted to the eschatological program of God's word. (laughs) You know, you want to lay down with a lion? Not in this stewardship. All right, let's understand this. The wolf lies down with the lamb. Not in this stewardship. We're not there yet. But why all these dreams to bring about peace without Christ, to bring about environmental, to try to create Eden on this earth? without Christ returning. It all comes down to the hatred of Jesus Christ. All right, well, stay tuned because we'll deal with that in chapter 11. You know, all of the nations are in the hands of God. God has sovereign control. And yet, when He comes to reign, He will have sovereign control exhibited in this earth. I love Acts 17.31. I quote it a lot. In fact, there's quite a bit in Acts 17. Um, Paul's uh, sermon here on Mars Hill. I love the sovereignty that he has. He doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need, we're not bring him offerings to feed him. Okay? Not like God gets hungry and we have to bring him extra offerings so he can eat well. Um, that's what it says in verse 25. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. In verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Our times and the boundaries of our habitation are in God's hands. When our nation began, when our nation will end. Why is this place called Texas now? It's not called Tejas, or it's not called whatever the Comanches used to call it, or or what have you. What's it going to be called when it's not Texas anymore? What's it going to be called when it's under different sovereignty? What was Uganda called before it was Uganda? All right. Nations come and nations go, but Jesus Christ is in charge of all of this. And of course, he has fixed a day. Verse 31 says, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. We are blessed to preach a resurrected Savior And we preach a resurrected Savior to this lost and dying world. We want to see folks not perish, but come to eternal life. We want to see folks be prepared for the coming of this kingdom because a day has been fixed. I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. No angel in heaven knows what it is, but it is fixed. And we are approaching it one day per day as we get get there. Finally, Revelation 19.11 1911. See, I'm convinced you need Isaiah to understand Daniel and Ezekiel. You need all the prophets, but they all come together and they get 
capstoned with Revelation. Revelation 19.11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True. What were those names on the belt around his waist we saw in Isaiah? Faithful and True. All right. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Second Advent, he's not doing that babe in a manger, humble virgin thing. Okay, That was First Advent. First Advent, he came in humility. First Advent, he came not to conquer, not to judge. He came to seek and to save the lost. Second Advent, he comes with power and great glory. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He gets the, vic- the victor's reward that you and I are eligible to have as well. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, there's you. Just write your name in there in verse 14. That's you. That's you and me. We're, we're riding on white horses behind him. Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That's the righteous acts of the saints, we're told. We were following him on white horses. What a, what a day that's going to be. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The millennial kingdom is going to require discipline because there's going to be rebellion throughout those thousand years. All right. So Jerusalem becomes the world's number one travel destination, and then he will enforce the global disarmament. Jesus Christ will over, personally oversee a global disarmament. Until he does so, nations are well advised to prepare for war. If anyone throws Isaiah 2 at you, throw Joel 3 right back at him. All right? Say, oh yeah? What about Joel 3.10? All right? Because Joel 3.10 takes it the other direction. To beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. <laughs> So uh, we're not in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. We need to be prepared for war. Every nation ought to defend their people. That's the pattern we have in Scripture. Joel 3.10, verse 9 says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. The better prepared you are, the less wars you have to fight. (laughs) Because if you're prepared and strong, others don't want to mess with you. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. I'm a special forces commando. Right? The mighty man, like David's mighty men. I'm going to go down and kill a lion in a pit on a snowy day. All right? Through the strength that he supplies. Jesus Christ will personally oversee global disarmament. By the way, it says they will never learn war again, we're told. Not, that, not only does he dismantle the, the actual weaponry, but he actually dismantles the industry behind the weaponry. The actual educational centers, the military academies are shut down. All of the colleges, the war colleges are done away with. They aren't even taught tactics and strategy and logistics and all the skills necessary to conduct military operations. Beyond the disarmament in terms of ending the weapons is a removal of the infrastructure, the industry behind the weapons. That's a powerful thing. And that should give you a clue as to what happens at the end of the millennium then at Gog and Magog. What kind of war is that then when Satan is released from the abyss and he leads the rebellion against Jesus Christ? What's that war about if they no longer have military uh, industry in place? It's a different kind of war, okay? So stay tuned for that as we reach that point in our study. Peace and safety messages are often used by Satan to seduce folks who should know better. Peace and safety messages. People love them. They eat them up because they want them to be true. They believe the lie because they're afraid of the truth. And they would love to believe that we have peace in our day. We would love to believe that, that Neville Chamberlain can strike an agreement with Adolf Hitler. All right? We would love to believe that uh, peace can come through cooperation and negotiation and, and negotiations and getting along with diplomacy. All right? Not in this fallen world. 
not while the adversary prowls about like a roaring lion. Peace and safety messages are often used by Satan to seduce folks who should know better. Jeremiah 6.14, Ezekiel 13.10, and 1 Thessalonians 5 and 3. Chapter 5, verse 3. While they're crying out peace and safety, what happens? Sudden destruction comes upon them suddenly. Okay? Ezekiel 13, 10. Uh, the, the, the message there is that you're, you're promising them peace, but all you're doing is you're just putting whitewash on a flimsy wall. You put whitewash on a flimsy wall and say, that's a strong wall. That's going to keep the enemy out. It's not a strong wall. You just painted it to look like a strong wall. It's like a Hollywood prop. It's just cardboard or paper mache or something. You could bust right through it. These flimsy declarations of peace. We'll be dealing with it in Jeremiah 6 and verse 4. That's why Jeremiah was so rejected. <laughs> He's the one guy speaking on behalf of the Lord in Jerusalem and all those false prophets, his contemporaries, his peers, they kept promising peace and safety. They were lying. They were preaching from their own imaginations or from Satan's imagination. Jeremiah was the only faithful one there and they hated him for it. Are we going to stand for the truth when we're the only one there? When we're the last church in Austin teaching divine viewpoint? Okay. We're not there yet. So pray for that. Pray for that remnant. Don't fall for the peace and safety. All right, the next section here of chapter 2. I've basically broken this chapter down into three parts. 1 through 4, 5 through 11, and 12 through 22. Here's the second part of the chapter. It's a call to walk in the light. And it's quite the contrast with Judah's idolatry. And it's quite the contrast with the concluding call to cower before the Lord's terrible light. This chapter goes through a spectrum where he, he gives them the command here to walk in the light, but he knows they're not going to. <laughs> You ever preach and you think, who's listening? I think Isaiah preached every chapter and said, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Is anyone paying attention? He says, come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. There's the invitation to come. Walk in the light of the Lord. And then comes the explanation, you're not doing this. <laughs> and uh, then when he concludes... In verses 10 and 11, he says, enter the rock and hide in the dust. That's kind of a contrast, don't you think? I mean, do we want to walk in the light of the Lord or we want to enter into the rock and hide in the dust? Well, that's going to become necessary because we didn't walk in the light of the Lord. Israel rejects the message of the Word of God until tribulation humbles them. So there's the contrast. The call to walk in the light is quite the contrast with Judah's idolatry. That's described in verses 6 through 9. It's kind of interesting. After he urges the house of Jacob to walk in the light of the Lord, he turns to the Lord and he says, you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. He starts praying to the Lord and, and lamenting, lamenting the national rejection. Because they are filled with influences from the east. They are, sooth, they are soothsayers, witch doctors. They are like the Philistines. They strike bargains with the children of foreigners. This is quite a description. And sometimes I wonder, is this 7th century B.C. Jerusalem or is this 21st century America? What do we see here? We see bargains struck. We see we're, we're bed partners with people. We go, Why are we in bed with these people? We see agreements that are re reached. And, oh, okay, the land is filled with silver and gold, no end to the treasuries. Okay, good enough for me. <laughs> What's a little temporal success, right, to cover for some idolatry? Wow. Interestingly enough, Isaiah is kind of a foreshadowing of John the Baptist and Elijah in the second advent. Every time God calls for Israel to repent, He sends a messenger to announce that call to repentance. As Isaiah says, he says, walk in the light. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Jeremiah or uh, John the Baptist says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Elijah in the second advent, or the eschatological Elijah in the second advent, will be turning the hearts of the people back to serve the Lord. 
What good is it if they have a political deliverance if their heart is far from Yahweh Elohim? This call prefigures the call of John the Baptist for Israel's national repentance, as well as eschatological Elijah's ministry of heart restoration. I don't want to go maybe too much into it today, maybe in the interest of time, because it will come back in Isaiah chapter 40. This is really the lead-off message of chapter 40. After 39 chapters of judgment and wrath and the Old Testament parallel, right? Remember, there's 66 chapters in Isaiah, 39 chapters that parallel the Old Testament. And then starting in chapter 40, you have 27 chapters of grace and comfort and glory. And in Isaiah 40, we have this message of comfort that comes. It is a call for repentance. It is a call to get our heart right. So here's some homework for you. I don't know if we have uh, time to get into this because I do want to talk about the, the pride and what he's crushing in the last half of this chapter. But understand it's a prefigure, it's a foreshadowing. And, and Isaiah does it, Joel does it, Jeremiah does it, all the prophets do it. In the captivity it's going to be Daniel. Daniel's going to be crying out for his nation to repent. Daniel lives through the captivity. Daniel lives for 70 years in the captivity. He's an old man when he's saying his prayers in chapter 9 and chapter 10. And the prophet Daniel just confesses for his people because Israel has not repented. Even after 70 years of captivity, Israel has not repented. It was the ministry of John the Baptist when he shouted, repent. It's going to be the ministry of Elijah at the second advent, repent. So here's your homework. Read Isaiah 40 and verse 3. Read Malachi 3 verses 1 through 4, as well as Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. And you're going to be told that Elijah is coming. All right? Elijah is coming. That's why the Jews today believe Elijah is coming. They leave an empty seat for him at their, at their Seder. Right? Because Elijah is coming. And uh, the disciples asked the Lord, why do the Scriptures say Elijah is coming? And Jesus said, Elijah is coming. But if you care to accept it, I tell you that Elijah already came. And he highlights the ministry of John the Baptist and said, John the Baptist came preaching repentance and you chopped his head off. You wanted nothing to do with it. After you get done reading Malachi, then you can read Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. You can read Matthew eleven fourteen, Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13, and then Luke 1, 17. Put all those passages together and you have a great picture for eschatological Elijah. Eschatological Elijah, who was not John the Baptist. <laughs> okay. But Elijah is coming. And when he comes, this message is going to be Bible preaching. It's going to be, like we heard this morning, first hour, it's going to be, let the Word of God affect you, change you, empower you, start living your life based on the truth of God's Word. It's not enough just simply to be saved. God didn't save you so that you could be saved. He saved you in a good works which were prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. All right. Yahweh has abandoned his people, but not for an eternal abandonment. We get this. In Isaiah 2, he says, you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. But don't start immediately jumping into replacement theology, okay? (laughs) God's not done with Israel. The church does not replace Israel. Yes, he abandoned her. We'll see in Jeremiah, he gave her a certificate of divorce and sent her away because she was a faithless harlot of a wife but he will bring her back. He will restore her. That is promised. Not because of her faithfulness, because of his faithfulness. Yahweh has abandoned his people, but not for an eternal abandonment. He even warned them that. Deuteronomy 31, Moses warned the people. He said, you will fall away and you will be judged for falling away, but you will be brought back. We studied this recently in the book of Romans, right? Romans 11, has God abandoned his people? May it never be. How can God forsake those whom he foreknew? He knows all about the rebellion. He knows all about the apostasy. And he still made eternal promises anyway. That's huge. If you think, or if a friend, I'll forget you guys, you guys know better. You've been taught better. But you've got a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, somebody, right? A relative. And they think that the church has replaced Israel because they blew it. Don't stand for that. Ask him what kind of liar you think God is, right? Because God made eternal promises to them. 
And if he can back out on those promises, then he's not faithful. And if he's not faithful, we're not saved. Because what's going to... What would keep him from dumping us like he dumped Israel? If he did dump Israel, he didn't dump Israel. That's the point. As faithless and rebellious as they are, they have an eternal future. As faithless and rebellious as we are, we have eternal life. Because if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. It's the whole impact on this. Self-boasting over personal achievements Self-boasting over personal achievements. When we start uh, giving ourselves the glory for great things we have done, we are imitating Satan. Self-boasting over personal achievements is the essence of satanic imitation. It, it just That's what this is all about here. Look what they've done. They've filled their land with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. And they're not embarrassed about it. They'll, they'll, they're right out and saying, look what we've done. And clearly, we're right because God wouldn't have blessed us with all these riches if He wasn't happy with what we were doing for Him. Well, wait a minute. There's another God in this world who does reward with riches. (laughs) And that's the God of this age. Are you sure you're not serving Him? Are you sure you're not reaping His treasures? Because God's treasures are in the heavenly places in Christ. God's treasures are the eternal treasures. That's where our blessings are. The heavenly places in Christ. Go to Ezekiel 28 sometime and read verses 4 and 5 and you see the human reflection of Satan's activity in verses 16 through 18. The human reflection is verses 4 and 5. The satanic example is verses 16 through 18. And it happens today. It happens in our culture. It happens in our country. It happens in our churches. Self-boasting. You know, is it, is it to Bob be the glory, great things he has done? No, it's to God be the glory, great things he has done. All right. The, uh, the refuge. Israel will take refuge in the rock of the Lord's refuge, even as their pride is humbled before his majesty. This is really the closing of this paragraph here where he tells them to cower. He tells them to enter the rock and hide in the dust. When it comes to the second advent of Jesus Christ, when it comes to the hell on earth that will be unleashed in the tribulation, the abyss itself is going to be unlocked. Demons are going to flood this place. Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by the armies of the earth. What are they going to do then? Well, they're going to enter into the rock and they're going to hide in the dust. And this is what it's going to take to humble them. From the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of His majesty. It's a little bit different from when the Gentiles cower. The Gentiles are going to cower and hope that He just doesn't find them and goes away. The Jews are going to cower and pray that He does find them and rescues them and delivers them into the kingdom of glory. This has been their pattern throughout their history. Deuteronomy 32, 31. You want to learn about the rock? The rock of escape? The refuge? So much of our hymns are centered in, many of our hymns are centered in the rock. Deuteronomy 32, 31. Judges 6, 2. 1 Samuel 13, 6. Psalm 144, verses 1 through 4. All right. This is how I'm getting through a chapter of Sunday. (laughs) Giving you the big idea at the top, highlighted in the lighter green, And then the additional details down below with some homework for you to look up. Because if I stop and take us through 1 Samuel 13, we could be there a while. (laughs) All right. Those are my fun chapters. Or Judges chapter 6. The concluding call to cower before the Lord's terrible light. Ultimately speaking, that's all they can do. They're going to take refuge. They're going to have a fortress preserved for them in Basra. They're going to have territory. They're going to have a, a place of rescue. And the Lord will rescue them there. When you study the different uh, components of the Armageddon campaign, some of these things become clear. At some point, they just have to hunker down and wait for Him to rescue them. Different aspects. And it's, it's, uh, it's a ferocious thing. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, Put that verse in its right context. <laughs> and don't let your friends and coworkers 
you know, abuse that passage either. Try to turn that into some kind of a ridiculous loser salvation thing, okay? You see why these things are so important? You understand why we have to compare Scripture to Scripture and relate the prophets to each other and to the book of Revelation? So that we're not seduced by the swords in the plowshares garbage and we're not seduced into uh, enduring to the end to be saved ridiculous stuff, right? We want to know the Lord. We want to know His Scriptures. We want to know His truth. Finally, the last half of this chapter. Lord Sabaoth, His name, right? That verse we sing in, uh, in uh, A Mighty Fortress. Lord Sabaoth, His name, from age to age the same. Okay? Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. This is His battlefield name. This is His name of combat. This is His name of coming to crush His enemies. And this is the day, not just the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord of hosts being described here in verses 12 and following. The day of the Lord of hosts will have, for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty, against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. This is the overthrow of the satanic world system. And every agent of the adversaries that has dominion today, they're done dealing when Jesus Christ comes back at his second advent. The proud one is going to be thrown down. It is the global humiliation against the proud one and his dominion of human pride. The day of the Lord of hosts. See, this is something else. I think so many folks, they want, they want it to be today. They want that Today they want to see the bad guys lose. Well, God is not slow in his promises as some count slowness. He's patient. He's patient, not wishing for any to, for, to, any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So if you're, if you're frustrated at how much wickedness you see, uh, how about you start giving the gospel to some folks? Let's get busy about our evangelism. Let's, let's get on board with God's plan and program. Stop trying to whitewash the devil's world. Let's start, uh, you know, like, like J. Vernon McGee said all those years ago, they wanted, he, he, they wanted him to start participating in their crusades, their moral crusades to clean up Los Angeles as he pastored there, that church of the open door. And he told him, he said, no, that's not what I'm called to do. The Lord didn't command me to clean up the cesspool. He told me to fish in it. All right, and that was only J. Vernon McGee could say, right? Waco farm boy that he was. So, the day of the Lord of hosts as you work your way through this, you're going to notice uh, there's so much in this. There's um, a lot of doctrine in these verses. The pride of man will be humbled in verse 17. The loftiness of men will be abased. All of the exaltation of humanity. And we see it with human rights, with all this stuff. Humanity, humanity. Humanity is going to reach its pinnacle when 666, the, the number of humanity reaches its uh, its trinity there. Stay tuned for that. God's going to bring it down. The pride of man will be humbled, the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. There will be no other celebrations. There will be no other worship, no other honors, no other prizes. Uh, there won't be an Academy Awards ceremony that year. There won't be uh, any, any uh, Grammys. There won't be any Tonys. There won't be any uh, Baseball Hall of Fame enshrinements. None of that. All of that ends because there is only one name worthy of exaltation and Jesus Christ alone is going to be exalted in that day. Looking forward to that. <laughs> Stop regarding man. Look at the last verse of this chapter. Stop regarding man whose breath is in his nostrils. Do <laughs> you know how small nostrils are? I mean, really. Even, even, okay, now there's different sizes, I get that. But even, it doesn't matter. Even if you've got the biggest nostrils that ever graced a human face, all right? They're still pretty small when it comes right down to it. Easy to cover. How much breath do you have? Okay, You know how puny we are? Here's man exalting ourselves in all this satanic rebellion. And we are puny little nostrils. 
cut off the airflow, we're done. Stop regarding man whose breath is in his nostrils. Why should he be esteemed? You know, when you exchange the truth of God for the lie, when you exchange the Creator for the creature, how pathetic is that? So I'm looking forward to Yahweh Tzavayoth coming back and putting an end to all of these exchanges. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven from those who exchange the truth of God for the lie. Now, um, i got five minutes left. The idea of pride, the idea of Satan, it's a huge theme. And, and, and to me, I like visual images. How about the dragon that's in Job 40 and 41? This is the last bit here. We're going to have to close. But as we go back to Job and Leviathan, we had Leviathan earlier in that Isaiah passage, Isaiah 27. You know, when you're dealing with Leviathan, you're dealing with Satan. You're dealing with a dragon. And the whole point is, Job is full of himself. How badly he's been mistreated. How wrong God is. Right? Boo-hoo. Woe is me. God is not fair. I shouldn't go through what I'm going through because I've done all this good stuff for God. He owes me. Wait a minute. That's just the pride of Satan being reflected through Job's lips. The pride of Satan being reflected in human rebellion and verbal blasphemy against the Lord. And so he's rebuked for it. The Lord says to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? (laughs) All right now, are we really going to have this debate? Because you're the fault finder and I'm the Almighty. That's what God's telling him here. Let him who reproves God answer it. You're You're reproving me? All right, stand up now then. In fact, gird up your loins, he says in verse 7. The Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you will instruct me. You're going to reprove me? Then reprove me. But do it as only God can do it. Will you really annul my judgments? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? All right. If you truly are God, then here's what you should be about doing. Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity. Clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowing of your anger. Look on everyone who is proud and make him low. This is the role of God in the universe. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him. Tread down the wicked where they stand. If you can do all this, God says in verse 14 of Job 40, then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. (laughs) if you're going to claim deity status, then do all this, and I will admit you are God and you can save yourself. See the sarcasm, the tongue-in-cheek? Is he communicating? So then he highlights two creatures. He highlights behemoth and he highlights Leviathan. Either one, Job is puny in front of. And if he can't handle those two, how can he handle God himself? He says, go ahead. Go ahead. Go toe-to-toe with Leviathan. You won't do it again. Okay? You'll only do it once. When you get to the end of the Leviathan chapter, and you can read this and see the fire-breathing dragon and see all the glories of Leviathan in there, but at the end of chapter 41, what does it say? Nothing on earth is like him. One made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. That is our adversary. That is who Jesus Christ is going to defeat at second advent. That strong angel will bind him in a chain. He's going to be cast in the abyss for the thousand years. The pride of Satan is crushed by the Lord's advent in glory. And all the systems of pride, all the systems of arrogance are going to be brought to an end. And the humble King of kings and Lord of lords will sit on the throne in Jerusalem and reign for that thousand year day of the Lord, that thousand-year transitional period we call the millennium. And that's just day one of eternity, all right? Don't, don't get all wrapped up about the millennium. The millennium is simply day one. It's the transition government. We'll be, we're going to be studying that as well. The, the real deal is the new heavens and new earth. The real deal comes after the millennium. The real deal, and Isaiah is going to teach us this, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. You heard that verse before? According to his promise, 
we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Father, I thank you for the prophet Isaiah. I thank you. Father, there's just so much to humble ourselves before, to recognize the prophetic uh, rebuke of Jerusalem and their idolatry. It hits, uh, hits each one of us, Father, in, in our personal idolatry, but it certainly hits our nation and our public idolatry. Father, I weep for how our nation has fallen and the judgment that has come upon our land because the United States of America does not have eternal covenant promises like Israel had. Father, they can be swept away into captivity and are promised a restoration. If we're, if we're brought low, Father, there is no eternal promise that has ever been uttered. There is no absolute covenant with the United States of America or with Uganda or Ukraine or uh, any of these countries, Father, but Israel and Israel alone. I pray that we might have an understanding of these messages. I pray that the impact from this truth would reach each and every one of us. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.